Good evening. Did everyone have a nice Thanksgiving holiday? That's good. I did, thank you. It was very relaxing. We had my youngest daughter and uh, son-in-law in from... Um, they live on Whidbey Island near Seattle. They came in. In fact, they're still here until Monday. And uh, our sons are here. Our daughter, oldest daughter, and <coughs> Gabe, her husband, and, and two granddaughters are in Texas, so we FaceTime, but we all had a wonderful time together. All right, um, we are transitioning into, um, it, it is essentially the conclusion of the parable of the sower because we're going to deal with the dynamics of hearing, um, and that pertains especially to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But I, I, I had um, <coughs> the impression that we would take a break from that tonight, and I wanted to share a very specific word regarding grace and its uh, effects on our life. So I want to uh, ask you to turn with me, if you would, please, to Hebrews, the fourth chapter. And let's pray for a moment. Father, we welcome your Holy Spirit here to cause your word to come alive to us, to introduce us more fully and more intimately to Jesus Christ. And we are careful right now to release into your hands our concerns, our challenges, things that might distract us from you. We release them into your care, knowing that you love us, you care for us, and you will tend to our needs with your, um, with your power, with your wisdom, and your resources. And so tonight, we can simply rest in that knowledge and turn our attention and turn our hearts toward you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 4. <coughs> Let's begin with verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence, I think the King James reads boldness, to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this is a, a verse of scripture many of us are familiar with because we have found uh, comfort in it and, and maybe sought refuge in it. We are encouraged here to come boldly or confidently to the throne, the throne um, of grace, to find, to receive mercy, and to find grace to help us in our time of need or trial. And, th and those trials, um, you know, are many and varied. They can be an internal crisis. Uh, it, it can be the need for healing, physical or emotional, psychological healing. Um, 
It may be um, a temporal need in your life. It may be a relational need. Whatever trouble we are facing, whatever crisis we're experiencing, we are encouraged to approach the Father to receive mercy and to find grace to help us in that time of need. And I think it's imperative when we consider this sort of help that we reflect back on the sort of help that Jesus ministered to those in need who approached him in the Gospels. Grace is not a consolation prize. It provides a pathway to triumph in Christ, to the, to the liberation of the miraculous in our lives and in our circumstances. When people came to Jesus, they came to him trusting to help them in their time of need. He responded to their needs with God's power. It was his compassion, it was his love and action, but his power served to remedy their problem. They experienced real triumph in that moment, didn't they? And I think it's important that when we consider this grace um, that is given to help us in time of need, that God wants to reveal himself often in his power in our situation. He wants to provide a remedy that draws on his resources, that calls upon his power to make a difference in our circumstance, a difference that allows God to reveal himself in his power and his love and to receive glory for it. I think it's uh, 2 Corinthians 2.14. Um, now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest or visible his glory by us in every place. So these challenges that we're experiencing can at any moment flower and fruit with redemption. God can reveal himself, turn those situations around and reveal his love, his grace, and his power in them and through them and receive glory. And, and I think it's important that we bear that in mind. Sometimes I, I, as I hear people uh, broach the subject of grace, it sounds as if it's a consolation prize. Well, things are going badly, and they're really not going to get better, but it's good to know that God is with you in the midst of your challenge. And there's a real truth to that. And I have a real admiration for people who want to continue faithfully serving Christ even in the midst of trials. But I'm not convinced that he doesn't wish to make himself known in the midst of those trials through the miraculous. And I want you to bear that in mind as a possibility as we work through this tonight. Um, the word um, uh, um, confidence here, again, in, in the King James, I think even in the New King James, it's boldness. It is um, parousia. It means boldness. Not arrogance, but boldness despite God's awesome greatness. It's rather like the uh, Lord's Prayer that we recite each Sunday. Our Father, that was a revolutionary approach to prayer. That in and of itself, and the disciples said, teach us to pray. That must have stunned them when they heard those words, Our Father. 
Remember, now that's a very personal approach to God. But to that point, of course, these were, were Jews. Their relationship to God was rather distant. Theirs was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Personal in one respect, but impersonal in that it seemed to be a little detached. It was, uh, it was your relationship, your covenant relationship, that allowed you access to God, but it seemed somewhat impersonal. And here Jesus springs them on them, springs this on them. How, how do you pray? First, you address God as Father. Our Father who art in heaven. There is a recognition of his awesome greatness. And yet this invitation to approach him on this sort of personal and intimate level. So we are to approach this throne boldly um, that is confidently and uh, we're to do it in our time of need but in the uh, uh, opening statements of this same chapter there is a suggestion that faith serves as a catalyst to liberate this help that grace brings to us in our time of need hebrews 4 verse 1 paul writes therefore let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest any of you may seem to come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. Now, he's referring here. In fact, let's back up a few verses into chapter 3. Um, um, let's begin with uh, verse 16. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Enter what? The promised land. Now recall, I think it's in Deuteronomy 10, we read that God brought them out, brought the children of Israel out of Egypt in order to bring them into the promised land. That was his expressed will and intent. And yet we know that that first generation perished on the wrong side of Jordan. They perished in the wilderness. It was the second generation that Joshua would lead in and inherit the promised land. Why did they um, fail to enjoy the fulfillment of God's stated will for their lives? Well, we read it here. So they were not able to enter in because of unbelief. Let's, let's take a moment and, 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 and uh, look at this. It's a rather tragic story, but Paul is suggesting there's an important lesson uh, to be found for us in this narrative. Numbers, the 13th chapter, uh, beginning with verse 1. Now, they've been traveling for some time through the desert. Moses is leading the children of Israel. Finally, they arrive at the threshold of the promised land. They're, they're on the banks of the Jordan River, then the Lord spake to Moses, spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send them in from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. And let's pick this up in verse 25. So they've journeyed through the land, it, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been an extraordinary um, adventure. They've discovered some uh, 
uh, rather remarkable things about this promised land, and now they are returning with a report of what they've discovered. Um, verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and certainly it does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So recall, they, they, were, they found a cluster of grapes so large it required two men carrying it between them on a staff. So this was an extraordinary uh, land um, that God had promised them. And certainly it does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large and moreover we saw the descendants of Anak there and Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan now what's happening here they've noted honestly and frankly the wonderful abundance that exists in that land but they've also noted the presence of challenge, very real challenge. And they are beginning to suggest that the challenges are so great that um, it's it will be impossible for them to survive there. They are suggesting, and I think I stated this once before several Thursdays ago, they made the mistake of imagining that the presence of challenge implied the absence of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Often, God's best comes to us cloaked with very real challenge. And you and I have to be much more discerning about the events that lie before us if, if we're going to continue to journey forward into God's purpose for our lives. Uh, we, we, we can't turn away in the face of challenge. We may be turning away from something very important that God is directing us toward. Verse 30, Caleb sees the direction this um, dialogue is trending in and he, and he understands the conclusion people are going to reach. So he quiets the people before Moses and he says, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. Say that word together with me, overcome. Now what, is this, what does this language suggest? It means that he is not denying the presence of challenge. He's, he's not blindly ignoring the fact that there are enemies, there are fortified cities, that very real challenges exist there. He's simply stating that because God is with them, we can overcome them. And that's the language that, that's consistent with the New Testament. We are overcomers. We are victors. All of that language suggests the reality of challenge. Victory over something. Triumph over something. Overcoming something. Life is full of challenge <laughs> on so many levels. Um... And there's, there's little point in, in denying it. I think, you know, I said once, well, most of us are, 
A little too intelligent for denial, but avoidance is generally our drug of choice. We used to avoid dealing with things, but we don't need to. We, when we face challenge, we can counter it in the same way that David did. Um, David is facing Goliath on the battlefield, and, and uh, I think uh, it's important that we note his posture. He hasted, he ran toward Goliath. There was no fear. There was confidence that because God was with him, the, the more swiftly he ran, the more quickly Goliath would be in, in range of his sling and would be felled. And listen, if you're like me, and maybe you're not, but I, when, when trouble comes, I really am not very welcoming of it. I want to keep it at bay. I feel like fleeing. Until I pause and consider that I'm not alone. And that on the other side of this challenge lies something better. And so I'm reminded of James' encouragement, count it all joy when you fall into various tests, trials, and temptations. Knowing that the trying of your faith worketh what? Patience, or literally endurance, and it's not simply endurance. It is cheerful endurance. Now, um, I ran long distance um, when I was in my early 20s, and I didn't take it up again until the last couple of years, and I don't think you could quite call it running yet. <laughs> I go three miles, but I, I jog or something similar to that, and then I walk for 100 yards, and then I jog again until I finish the three miles, and uh, the times are not nearly what they were when I was in my 20s. Um, but then and now, I can't say I enjoy moments while I'm running, but if you ever looked at my face, you, would, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't get the sense that he's in love with this. He really enjoys this. It's just something that I, I need to do, so I do it, um, grimacing sometimes. Um, but I do it. Um, but the challenge with endurance of that sort is it swiftly fades. You just lose the will to continue. James is talking about cheerful endurance. And how is it that we can cheerfully endure? Oh, we're a little like Jesus. We, we see the challenge, but we look beyond it. He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. And if we have an anticipation that God will make the difference, we can cheerfully endure. And God will show up, and he will be glorified, and our situation will be improved. And, you know, that's particularly important when we're struggling with some internal crisis, some deep-seated hurt that's driving behaviors that are unhelpful to us and, and to those around us. Um, it's important for you to know that you don't have to deal with that. You don't have to develop this array of cunning um, um, strategies to, to uh, deal with that to accommodate it, to work, find workarounds. 
you can face it head on and believe that the God of all grace is going to show up. He's going to resolve that hurt. He's going to repair the damage. He's going to make you whole. We don't have to avoid the, the reality of, of pain in our lives. We, we don't have to um, develop coping strategies that never really deal with it effectively um, so that it's constantly haunting us and dogging our steps. We can move beyond it. An overcomer isn't someone who is forever um, struggling with this challenge. An overcomer that language suggests that you overcome it. That at, at some juncture it becomes a part of your past never to be revisited again. And so Caleb is saying, all right, look, no, 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 no. We can do this and in fact we need to do it now. Now I want to ask you, did, the, did these uh, other spies report anything that wasn't so? No, they were being very honest in their appraisal, very frank, but they didn't exaggerate. They didn't exaggerate either the, the um, extravagant abundance of the land or its challenges. They gave a, a very frank report, an objective uh, assessment of the nature of that land that was promised to them. And so when they said, we really shouldn't go into that land, it will destroy us. You would probably, if you were there, you would think, well, this is very prudent counsel. These are wise men. I think we should probably um, heed their advice. And when you heard Caleb, no, 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 listen, I'm telling you, it's not that big a deal. We can overcome them. We need to go up at once. You'd think, what an impulsive, rash young man. That, that kind of fellow can get you in trouble in a hurry. I do not need this guy counseling me. But Caleb was the one that was right. They brought up what was called a, an evil report. Why? What was so evil about it? It wasn't a lie. It reflected the reality that was apparent to their senses. Why was it an evil report? Yeah, it didn't factor in the promises of God. It didn't factor in the reality that is God. That's why it was evil. Not because it reported what was apparent and true on the basis of, of, of that reality. It was because it didn't include a broader um, um, continuum of reality. It could only... It could only reckon with what was visible, not with what was invisible. And so it was an evil report. And, and Caleb said, no, we need to go up at once. And so they all perished, save Joshua and Caleb and that next generation. And, and they went into the promised land. But this is what Paul is referring to. Um, let's go back there. Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Hebrews, the fourth chapter. I wish time travel were possible. I just keep rewinding the clock. <laughs> um, okay, so verse 19 of chapter 3, we see they were not able to enter in because of unbelief. So that's what he's referring to. Verse 
1 of chapter 4, therefore, let us fear, or in light of that, let us fear. What should we be frightened of, Paul? A promise remains of entering his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, now it was two different gospels, obviously. There was a rest that Joshua couldn't leave them into, that Jesus it leads us into. But there was, there was a word preached, and they didn't mix faith with it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. We've spent a lot of time talking about hearing the word and allowing that word to bear fruit in our lives. This word didn't bear fruit. It didn't profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. It wasn't mixed with faith. Faith is the catalyst that liberates the help to be found in grace. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said. Um, let's, let's look for a moment at um, uh, Ephesians, the second chapter. This is a verse we can probably all quote by heart. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we are saved by grace, and this word saved is, I think, sozo, and it's referring to a very broad salvation. It is complete salvation for the complete man, spirit, soul, and body. We have been saved by what? Grace, through Faith. So let's think of it as sort of an arithmetic equation. Grace plus faith equals salvation. Grace plus faith equals salvation. Now, if we're not experiencing salvation in some arena of our life, then we need to ask the question, why? Has God, let's call grace God's response to our need. And let's call faith our response to his provision. So we all are in desperate need of a Savior. Has God responded to our need? Yes, in sending Jesus. When we appropriate this marvelous gift of salvation by faith, we are then saved. Do you think God can ever be accused of failing to respond adequately to our needs? No. So if a need remains unmet, is it because of God's negligence? No. Somewhere along the way, we have failed to mix faith with the promise. We have not mixed faith with the word preached. Now, It's easy at this juncture to stumble into some sort of really um, unfortunate legalism. And I, and I don't want to do that. Uh, a message like this is intended to inspire hope, encourage joy and confidence, not to condemn. 
Um, I, I'm certain in my life there have been times where God yearned to move, but I wasn't responding in faith. And Thursday before last, before Thanksgiving, remember we talked a little bit about that. Um, God stands poised for action. He is ready to work in our lives, but he's waiting for this invitation, the invitation that faith provides. And when we, when we um, choose to believe, then we swing wide the door to God. We're inviting him to do what he's promised to do, what he yearns to do. We'll look at these promises in just a moment. But these promises are given as an expression of God's great love for us. His passion toward us. His yearning to meet our needs. And to remedy the trouble in our lives that is brought about by the God of this world. Our adversary. But God refuses to intrude upon um, our autonomy. He will not violate it. It is sacred. If he violates our autonomy, we cease to be uniquely human. We cease to have the capacity then to enjoy this invitation to fellowship with the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, this extraordinary invitation to join that loving fellowship. And so it's essential that our autonomy be preserved. This is why Jesus asked so often when people came to him, he said, can you believe? Will you believe? Do you have faith? On the one hand, it almost sounds petty. Well, why do you, why do you always ask that? You know their need. Jesus said, listen, your father, he knows your need before you even ask him. Well, then why do I have to ask him, some people say? Why do I have to go through, the, to, uh, through that? And I've heard preachers say silly things. I heard one preacher say, well, you know, my little, ch uh, my little daughter asked me for something, and it was so adorable the way she asked. I said, what do you want? And he repeated this several times. I just kept making her say it because it was so cute. I think God just wants to hear us say it. That's just sickeningly schmaltzy, for one thing. <laughs> but it's also horribly inaccurate. We ask because God requires an invitation. And once we say yes, Lord, what did Jesus do when people said, Lord, I believe? Miracles occurred. And it wasn't perfect faith. One man said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. But it was enough. Jesus didn't say you had to have great faith. In fact, he said quite the opposite. Just a little faith swings the door open to me and allows me to work. So this, I, I, I don't want you, when, when I suggest that faith is this imperative, don't hear it in legalistic terms. Don't hear Instead, well, God says, if you don't play by my rules, I'm taking my ball and going home. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that God is poised for action. He's standing by, ready. Think about the God that we serve. We don't have an invitation to go rapping on heaven's door and asking for entrance. Instead, the creator of heaven and earth 
comes to our door and gently knocks. He stands there. What, what a picture of perfect humility. God the creator and possessor of heaven and earth is knocking on my door. Waiting for me to open and he said, if you will, I will come in and I will sup with you and you with me. That, that's extraordinary picture to me of humility. God is standing by, but he's simply waiting for you to say, yes, Lord, I believe. And he comes rushing in and, and at that selfsame moment, the door begins closing on the adversary. Um, so we are saved by grace. Through faith. It's the gift of God. We're not earning any of this. We don't merit it. We, we, we come to the throne of grace to receive what? Mercy. We don't qualify for God's best because we've given Him our best. We don't qualify for God's best because we've been so good. We qualify because first we receive His mercy. It's a great leveler, an equalizer. And then to find grace to help in time of need. We need to pick up the pace here. I guess I do. You all are listening quite, quite well. Um, first Peter, or Second Peter, let's turn there, please. Second Peter. <laughs> Can I have just a couple more minutes? Got one person. Are you the spokesperson? I'm going to assume you've been elected, so I'll continue. First Peter, the first chapter, or Second Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter, the first chapter, verse two. And now, the the epistles were often opened with this sort of language, but Peter's is unique. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, and this is simply suggesting the fullness of knowledge. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. How many of you want more grace? Since it's given to help us in time of need, I want more grace. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus, or, or excuse me, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge or through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So grace and peace is multiplied. It, be, it, it, um, it finds greater entrance into my life, into my perspectives through knowledge. Now this word knowledge is... Um, uh, epignosis, and it simply means experiential knowledge. It's coming to know Jesus. So it's suggestive of a relationship. It, it means that we get to know Jesus as he really is, not simply as we've imagined him to be. Grace and peace multiplied, expanded in our lives through this wonderful knowledge of him this tells me that i can access this grace volitionally that i can choose to encourage grace in my life it's not locked away and meted out to me bit by bit but there is a prerequisite for grace if it's to be active in my life. Let's just flip back a couple of pages to 1 Peter, the fifth chapter. 1 Peter 5, uh, verse, let's begin with verse 5. 
You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to whom? The humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, I find it intriguing that he connects this act of humility with the act, uh, or, or this this posture of humility with the act of casting all your anxiety or care upon him because he cares for you. There's real humility to be found in that simple act of casting our cares upon the Lord. I, we may not get to it, so I'll just jump ahead real quickly. Paul encourages us to do something similar in Philippians 4, uh, I think verse 3 Rejoice in the or four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. So that's that should be a sort of a a a constant in our lives. We're always rejoicing in the Lord. That is, we're turning our attention toward the reality that is God, that is his kingdom. We're reckoning with that all the time. That's part of our praying always. And he said, uh, let your gentleness be made known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So he says, listen, you were not created with the capacity to bear up long under stress. It's bad for you. And we know that today, don't we? You're, you're a psychiatrist. Uh, Anxiety is bad for the human psyche, isn't it? It's common. Yeah, it's common. People that uh, live under anxiety constantly, they can't resolve it. It has telling effects psychologically, physiologically, and spiritually. Jesus said it can create, he suggested in, in I think Luke 17 or 21, it can create a sort of spiritual deafness. It's not good. We were not created to thrive in that environment. So he said, listen, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer. Peter's saying essentially the same thing. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God by casting all your care upon Him. What is humbling about that? What it's suggesting is, Lord, I'm, coming, I'm not coming with any solutions here. Just a bag full of problems. I'm not bringing any solutions. I'm not bringing any special talent. I just have problems. And I'm casting them on you. That's really the language of Psalm Eight. Remember, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The picture of, of uh, perfect humility. The babe and the suckling. Wholly dependent upon another. That is, uh, it is from the lips of, of those men and women that uh, real praise flows so easily from. Their trust is entirely in Him. And when we do that, grace is liberated in our lives. So let's go ahead, um, let's go ahead and uh, let's close with 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. We'll just make that our closing tonight. 2 Corinthians 12. Curious um, uh, story here. Paul explains that uh, he was caught up into heaven. Whether he was in body or out of body, he doesn't know. 
but he saw things, heard things. Things were communicated to him. And verse 7, he said, because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, what is this thorn in the flesh? Some suggest it was a physical malady. I, I, I'm, if context means anything, I think he spent the 11th chapter explaining to us what this thorn in the flesh was. It was constant and continual harassment. He suffered persecution, stonings, nearly to death imprisonment, beatings, driven from one city to the next, under threat. It was... His life was so full of turmoil for doing what? Preaching the gospel. These revelations apparently um, enjoyed the capacity to um, allow Paul to serve as an especially effective apostle of Christ. And so this messenger of Satan was assigned to torment him, and apparently he did. Now, he, he implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, what? Verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Now, some people read this and say, so what the Lord said is, no, I'm not taking it away from you. Is that what he said? Let's look, let's look closely at what he did say. He didn't say, I'm not taking it away from you. He said, My grace is sufficient for you. Folks, that's what God says to every one of us in our time of trouble. My grace is sufficient for you. We're going, we're, we're, we're coming to the throne of grace boldly to find what? To receive mercy and to find grace for help in time of need. Paul was facing very real challenges. Jesus didn't say to him, no. He said what? My grace is available. And it's sufficient for what? What is it sufficient for? Overcoming whatever it is Paul is facing until he completes his, um, until he runs his race, which apparently he did. He said for power, his power is perfected in our weakness humility is the prerequisite to grace and paul was certainly um, reminded continually of his extraordinary need his weakness now in so sometimes in our lives that weakness is very apparent and it's far easier for us to acknowledge it but there are areas of our lives in which we desperately need god's grace and it's not so easy for us to acknowledge our weakness and our need. But if we choose to, then the, the weakness in our life actually becomes, uh, it, it provides God an entrance, an entrance point, an opportunity for His power, for His strength to be made perfect in our lives, to reveal itself to such a degree that it remedies this situation that we're struggling with i wish we had a little more time to go over that tonight we don't um but we'll we'll, we'll revisit this uh later but the, the the point tonight is guys grace 
plus faith equals salvation. So when we come up tonight for prayer, what are we doing? Or when you, when you approach God in your own private devotional life and you are presenting Him with a need, what, what are you doing? You're, you're coming to the throne of grace. And you can come there boldly, confidently, knowing that God, you're not working to persuade Him. He's persuaded. He's ready. He's poised for action. You're going to receive mercy because we're not perfect. And to find grace to help in that time of your need. And we simply, we simply mix with that grace faith. We trust that when we pray, God hears us. And because he's heard us, he has set at work, at, or he is set to work at once to begin working in that situation and remedying it until his power is revealed in some miracle, in, in some working that allows you to be free from whatever it is uh, that's been troubling you and for God's name to be glorified in and through your life, through that circumstance. Father, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for uh, loving us so much uh, and not leaving us here um, to our own devices to muddle our way through life. But you want to companion with us as we, as we walk through each day and make our way through this life. And you want to be present with us. You want to guide us. You want to counsel us. You want to minister peace to our hearts. You want to have fellowship with us. But Lord, you're also ready to liberate us from our troubles. To reveal your power in such a way that we are healed or we are delivered or, or you meet some need in our lives. And you do it in a way, Lord, that uh, not only demonstrates your love for us, to us, but demonstrates it to a watching world. And that moment becomes a witness to them of your great love and power. And I pray, Lord, as we, as we give <clears throat> ourselves to um, considering these truths, Lord, I pray, that, I pray that you make them real to us so real that we choose to act upon them consistently. In Jesus' name, amen.